Preface to The Dialogues of the Gods by Lucian Translated by Howard Williams This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by phone. Preface For the few ascertained facts in the life of the greatest prose satirist, and the most brilliant wit of Greek and Latin antiquity, we are indebted, almost wholly, to scattered and incidental allusions in his own various writings. Like his immediate predecessor, Menippus the Satirist, the illustrious Neoplatonist Porphyry in the third, and the orator Libanius in the fourth century, Lucian was Syrian by birth. He was born at Samosata, its heap of ruins still retains the old name almost unchanged on the euphrates not far distant from edessa and the chief city of the district of comagene in the extreme northeast of syria about the year a hundred and twenty a d tradition protracts the term of his existence to the age of ninety or even one hundred years he thus lived through the reigns of hadrian the two Antonines, and Commodus, and, at all events, the earlier parts of the reign of Severus, altogether the happiest period of the Roman Empire, and one of the most interesting ages in the world's history. Of his earlier life, the brief record supplied in his incomplete autobiographical sketch, The Dream, so often has been repeated that it is not necessary to do more than to refer to it here. It is enough briefly to repeat that the deliberations of a family council determined his parents, who were in poor circumstances, to apprentice him at the age of fifteen to his maternal uncle, a statuary, for whose art he had shown some boyish inclination, that by a fortunate accident, fortunate at least for the world of literary, if not of plastic, art, the breaking of a piece of marble, he was induced to run away from his master, in resentment at a severe flogging, and to transfer his allegiance to literature, Paideia, or rather to prepare himself, in the first instance, by a severe course of training, for the profession of a rhetor, in modern phrase a public speaker, which eventually led him to embrace the career of philosophy and letters. At this very early stage his memoir, unhappily, comes to an end, and we are left to incidental remarks in his more considerable productions. His experiences for some years lay in the hard school of poverty and neglect. In search of employment, or rather to master the rudiments of his profession, the young Lucian wandered through the cities of the southwestern region of the Lesser Asia the celebrated and highly cultured Ionia, gradually getting rid of his provincial manner and dialect, but still conspicuous by his Syrian, or, as he calls it, Assyrian, and un-Greek style of dress. In his twentieth year he arrived in Greece, and made his first acquaintance with the Platonic philosopher Nigrinus, who gives the title to one of his dialogues. He next settled in the Syrian capital, Antioch, where he practiced at the bar, and acquired considerable reputation as a pleader, 
but the chicanery and frauds of the interpreters of the laws soon caused him to abandon that pursuit the skill thus gained he turned to lucrative account as travelling disputant sophistus as it was termed a popular and profitable calling which was as common in the philosophic hellenic and roman world in the second century a d as it was in the scholastic europe of the middle ages in that capacity he traversed syria and egypt soon afterwards he visited rome in the year one hundred and fifty among other reasons to consult an oculist and in his negroness the literary result of his visit he stigmatizes the prevailing corruptions and laborious trifling of the literary as well as the fashionable society of the capital after a stay of two years in italy he proceeded to southern gaul at that time and long previously celebrated for its schools of rhetoric in gaul he continued his profession of public lecturer for some ten years his residence in that country being interrupted only by a visit to olympia during this period however he composed many of his published rhetorical pieces having now secured an independent income at the age of forty lucian set out again on his travels and made a journey through macedonia and thessaly on his way to his syrian home his stay at samosata was only temporary and inducing his surviving family to remove to athens in the next year he himself followed them to the literary metropolis which to him as to every greek or philhellenist doubtless was an object of supreme intellectual curiosity it was on his journey to athens that he had the interview with the paphlagonian prophet alexander which gave birth to his satire of that name the contempt openly exhibited by him for that eminent miracle worker had almost as he assures us cost him his life for the exasperated alexander had secretly instructed the crew of the vessel which he had insidiously placed at his visitor's disposal to make away with their charge a conspiracy frustrated only by the interposition of the relenting captain thus saved from a premature and inglorious end he proceeded on his journey to athens accompanied by that extraordinary adventurer peregrinus or peregrinus proteus whose fiery immolation of himself like that of another hercules furens before the assembled multitude at olympia witnessed by lucian in the year one hundred sixty five forms the principal subject of the peregrinus at athens lucian seems for there is no positive evidence to have taken up his fixed abode for the greater part of his remaining life occupying himself as may safely be conjectured in the highest philosophical and literary studies and in the enjoyment of the friendship of such exceptional philosophers as celsus the famous platonist critic of nascent christianity in his true account known to us only through the reply of origen published fifty years later of the stoic sostratus and the eclectic demonax his sketch of the career of the last a meritorious ethical teacher forms one of the not rare proofs of his esteem for real goodness
during this period appeared his masterpieces, his principal theological, philosophical, and ethical dialogues, when that consummate skill in the management of the marvellous Attic dialect had been attained, which rivals the style of the best masters, and which, as the acquisition of a foreigner, excites the admiration of all his editors and critics. Perhaps the only other equally remarkable instance of such kind of excellence is that of the African Terence. When about the age of seventy, impelled, it would seem, by imminent poverty, for authors then, even of the highest reputation, fell very far short of obtaining from the soci of the day the immense pecuniary profits now often secured by ephemeral writers, Lucian once more resumed his old occupation of rhetor or sophist, and produced some of those declamatory essays which appear among his published works. At a fortunate moment, he found relief from his pecuniary difficulties in an official income derived from his appointment to the registrarship or clerkship of the law courts of the Egyptian capital, the presentation to which office has variously been assigned to Marcus Aurelius, Commodus, and Severus. Chronology seems, on the whole, to support the claims of the last prince, who became emperor in 193, to the honour of saving from destitution the greatest literary ornament of the century. To clear himself from the charge of teaching one thing, in his satire on hired dependence, and practising another, by way of supplement to that essay, he published his Apology. From it, incidentally, we learn that he derived a large salary from his legal post. He alleges the forcible argument that, as the imperial master of the Roman legions himself, not to mention numerous less exalted personages, by no means refused the richest emoluments of office, he, the starving critic, could scarcely be blamed for following, in a very humble fashion, and at a very long interval, that elevated example. For the most part, his official duties at Alexandria he devolved upon a deputy, so that his learned leisure was little disturbed at Athens, where, as already stated, he died at an advanced age, but at what date is quite uncertain. Such are the somewhat meagre facts collected from his writings. To these, his earlier biographers or critics, led by the lexicographer Suidas, have been pleased to make some sensational and apocryphal additions. Suidas, of whom nothing is known except that he belongs to a very late date in Byzantine literary history, having probably in mind the story of the tragic end of the infidel Euripides, assures his readers that the blasphemer found a well-merited end in having been torn to pieces by wild dogs, and, not content with so unique a termination to his earthly career, adds, as to his posthumous existence, in the future, with Satan, he will have his portion in eternal fire. Another equally discreet authority, of the sixteenth century, Raphael Maffei, or Volateranus, as he is called from his birthplace, averse that he was a malicious apostate from Christianity, attributing to him the bon mot, 
that he had gained nothing from his old creed but change of name, Lucianus in place of Lucius, or Lucinus. To these and similar mendacious assertions, Erasmus replies, they attach to him the name of blasphemer, that is, evil speaker, but they who did so, one may sure, were those whose festering sores he had probed. To his bitter and persistent satirical assaults upon the established religion, and upon the contending sects of so-called philosophy, we may be sure not a few ephemeral replies appeared, but no notices of them have come down to us. While, however, the last echoes of pagan sacerdotal or sectarian animosity, excited by his exposures, died away at the establishment of Christianity, Orthodox zeal on the other side even still sometimes regards him as the declared enemy of the Christian faith. The hostility of the earlier Christian authorities had been aroused, in particular, by two very famous dialogues, the Peregrinus and the Philopatris, the Patriot. As for the latter, it has been proved, beyond reasonable doubt, to have been the production of a much later writer, bearing the same name as the reputed author, while, as for the former, the chief offence originated in a mistaken reading or interpretation of the text, where allusion is made to the founder of Christianity. In fact, the brief allusions of the Greek satirist to the new faith seem to discover less hostility than is displayed in his ridicule of the rival oriental creeds, of the established religion itself, or of the popular systems of philosophy and ethics. If Lucian has been thus vilified by the ignorance or malice of critics of early days, on the other hand, from the first moment of his resurrection, at the restoration of learning, from the first appearance of the Editio Princeps in 1496, he received an enthusiastic recognition of his rare merits from the best scholars of the time. Among them towers conspicuously the illustrious Erasmus, one of the earliest translators, 1514, in conjunction with Sir Thomas More, of the great masters of ridicule, whom he himself so admirably imitates in his Encomium Morio, Praise of Folly, and not altogether so happily in his Colloquius, citing the well-known verse of the Latin satirist poet, Omne tulit punctum qui miscuit utile dulci, he protests, no one, if not Lucian, has succeeded in illustrating this truth. He has imitated the raillery without copying the wantonness of the old comedy. Gracious heaven! Deum immortalem is his strong expletive of admiration. With what sly humour, with what grace and elegance he touches everything! With what power of sarcasm he holds up every folly to ridicule! How he seasons everything with his wonderful wit! Touching no absurdity that he does not cover with some irony or satire! Such grace, continues Erasmus, echoing the dictum of Archbishop Plotius, dominates in his style, there is so much felicity of invention, so much elegance in his wit, such pungency in his more serious assaults, 
he so tickles with his illusions so mingles the grave with the gay in such a way does he enunciate truth with a smile so admirably does he picture the manners the characters the pursuits of men as it were with a painter's pencil in such a manner does he display things which we cannot only read but actually see that whether one regards entertainment or utility and instruction there is no comedy no satire that has a right to be put in competition with his dialogues at the beginning of the sixteenth century at least this high eulogy was scarcely an exaggeration among the dialogues translated into latin by erasmus it is interesting to note are the timon and the alexander by moore who as an ecclesiastical zealot and as lord chancellor so soon forgot the spirit of his author and the principles of his own utopia the menippus the philosudes the lover of lies and the tyrannicide even melanchthon the associate of luther in the reformation struggle in germany assisted in the work of annotating the great sceptic fifteen twenty seven rabelais although there is no evidence that he took part in illustrating so congenial a mind must have been greatly indebted to him early in the next century sixteen fifteen his most considerable french editor bourdelot enthusiastically maintains that in proportion as the influence of lucian's writings was diffused the love of knowledge and virtue increased which still resides in the hearts of a few and goes so far as to affirm that by such influence the culture and even civilization of the philosopher's native country perceptibly benefited in the succeeding age a dutch critic hoogstraten believes him to have been not only the greatest genius of his own age but even of all antiquity these high eulogiums for the most part have been repeated by later critics to the days of hemsterhaus and wrights whose judicious settlement of the text and criticism and summary of the labours of preceding editors and annotators respectively first made to the world a worthy presentation of his genuine and attributed productions and by competent judges of our own time the english historian of great literature j w donaldson holds that his merits can scarcely be overestimated and considering him with reference to his own age and to the literature of greece justly adds the learned historian a position of the utmost importance must be assigned to him both in regard to the systems of religion and of philosophy to which he gave the death-blow and in respect to the cultivation of a purer greek style which he vainly taught and exemplified during the sixteenth century sixty-five editions in greek or latin in the seventeenth twenty-two in the eighteenth forty-four besides translations bore ample witness to the estimation in which he was held by the learned world in england the first edition of him and that only in part did not appear till sixteen seventy seven the first version in part in sixteen thirty four no english translation of any pretension appeared till that of carr seventeen seventy five to seventeen ninety eight 
a spirited but extremely free presentation of him which was followed by that of franklin professor of greek at cambridge 1780 and of took 1820 franklin's although not very faithful or accurate being altogether the most valuable of the three chief english presentations of lucian of french translations talbot's eighteen fifty seven has the greatest repute of german versions that of wieland the well-known poet and romanticist seventeen eighty eight is easily first and indeed it is generally held to be entitled to the foremost place among all attempts at a modern representation of the greek wit lucian is almost encyclopedic in the extent and rarity of his productions critic moralist philosopher politician poet romancist litterateur of the eighty-four separate writings attributed to him and published in the editions of his works not a few find an undeserved place there some pieces of inferior merit are the production of his earlier rhetorical period and show sufficiently evident traces of the stilted style characteristic of the fashionable declamatory essay as well in matter as in manner of his undoubted productions the shorter pieces dialogues of the gods of the sea-gods and of the dead by reason of their popular subject-matter and peculiar graces of style have always been most generally read his more considerable masterpieces are zeus the tragedian the sale of lives the timon the ferry-boat the twice accused the fisherman the fugitives the banquet the convicted zeus the convention of the gods the charon the icaromenippus the true history the prometheus the philosudes how history ought to be written the first attempt at a philosophy of history but not of sustained merit throughout the peregrinus on sacrifices on mourning and the alexander in the greek anthology twenty epigrams are ascribed to a writer bearing the name of lucian whether the composition of the lucian or not they are by no means unworthy of his genius and they are among the best in the whole extensive collection it is his theological dialogues that have most contributed to his fame the inimitable hellenic arts of architecture and of sculpture which adorned disguised and in some measure served to redeem the character of the religion of zeus or jupiter had long shown symptoms of decay the outward and visible sign of a corresponding coolness in the religious feeling of the upper classes but the religion of homer and hesiod still kept fast hold of the affections of the body of the peoples as it continued to do in fact throughout the country districts long after the state recognition of christianity while the great majority of the educated or influential sections of society regarded it as a useful means of retaining the masses in subjection to undermine this imposing structure of mingled fraud and imposture the absurdities the follies and the hypocrisies of its various adherents lucian especially devoted his almost unrivalled powers of wit and sarcasm 
and if ridicule could inflict a mortal wound, he might have been well satisfied with his brilliant efforts. But reflection on the history of the past must sometimes have inspired him with some misgiving, or even despair, for he was far from having been the first to expose the character of the orthodox theology. In the drama, the most popular form of literature in Hellas, in tragedy, Euripides, of the school of Socrates, had, in the latter half of the fourth century, given expression to the more rational belief of the best-educated minds of the time. In comedy, the conservative Aristophanes, in his inimitable dramas, whether purposely or not, had held up to the most open and undisguised contempt the most sacred objects of the national and popular worship. In the two next centuries, scepticism was rampant. In the lighter forms of literature, the mimes, parodies, of Sophron of Syracuse, and the bitter satires, Siloi, as they were termed, of Timon of Phlius, a disciple of Pyrrho, whose name has given a synonym for the extremist scepticism, held up to derision the occupants of the national pantheon. Such rationalistic writers, too, as Euhemerus, author of the Sacred Inscriptions, Palifatus, author of the Incredible Legends, and in particular Menippus, were direct predecessors of the satirist of Samosata. But these more popular writers were not the only assailants of the pagan pantheon, and it is enough merely to mention the names of Anaxagoras, Xenophanes, Democritus, Zeno, the founder of the Stoic school, Antisthenes, the founder of the most practical satirists, the Cynics, and above all, Epicurus, to recall their wide divergences from, and sometimes direct assaults on, the Olympian theology. To Lucian, however, as to Voltaire in the last century, was reserved, in a very special degree, the work of popularizing and bringing within the reach of the most ordinary intelligence the various labors of his predecessors. Of his models in the dialogue form of writing, Plato and Xenophon are most commonly quoted, but the eloquent founder of the Academy, and the author of the Oikonomicus, rather improved than originated it. Sophron of Syracuse and Zeno of Elia in Italy had already brought it into use. In the following century, Antisthenes also employed it. As for the ethical character of Lucian, if we may trust to his own representation of himself, it deserves high praise. In the dream, among the superior advantages offered by Paideia, he gives prominent place to the virtues of justice, mildness, and reasonableness. In his revived philosophers, he declares himself to be a hater of falsehood, of imposture, of arrogance, of pride, a lover of truth, of beauty, of sincerity, and all things lovely. He abandoned the profession of the law from disgust for its iniquity, or for the fraudulent methods of its practisers. He engages, as he declares, in the war against falsehood, quite conscious that he is fighting a desperate battle, that the vast majority are against him. In his biography of his friend, Demonax, 
his appreciation of that superior cynic exhibits him as a sympathetic admirer of true worth in one department of morals on the assumption of his having been the author of the scandalous erotes loves he has been made the subject of undeserved censure for its tedious dullness and its frigid and sophisticated tone alike foreign to lucian's manner prove it to be spurious it has been sometimes objected to lucian's philosophical claims that he made no attempt to build anew upon the ruins of the religious system overthrown by him but in the first place systems of faith or morals already abounded ad nauseam and to have erected another system of philosophy would have been only to add to the existing confusion the work immediately and urgently needed was that of complete destruction and the clearing of the ground for the future dissemination of higher and nobler ideas this he did at all events as far as religionism and metaphysical shams were concerned with the persistent zeal of a sincere reformer in the second place if the charge be a substantial one he shares the blame with almost every destructive critic of after ages whose opportunities for establishing better fates have been superior to his the charge to which he is more justly open and it is the only grave fault perhaps in his writings is indiscrimination in his assaults on the philosophies of the day his apparently contemptuous treatment in particular of pythagoreanism the parents of platonism and the philosophical school which was most productive of examples of the higher virtues as well as of intellectual ability deserves censure in his sale of lives in the revived philosophers and in one of the dialogues of the dead in particular he seems to have yielded to the temptation a sort of temptation to which great wits have always been liable of utilizing matter so promising as the ridiculous fables which the enemies of pythagoreanism abundantly supplied that among the self-styled followers of pythagoras were to be found some pretenders and not a few extravagant expositors of his teaching as such are found in all societies or sects is sufficiently probable but to hold up indiscriminately to ridicule what was in the main a meritorious system of ethical philosophy that certainly did not become the character of a just critic he lived indeed before the appearance of the school of new or newer platonism whose founders plotinus ammonius and porphyry the most erudite of all the later greek scholars belong to the following century extravagant as may have been some of their speculations the new platonists by their noble if hopelessly futile attempts to reform and spiritualize the established religion and by their noble protests against the gross practical materialism of life have deserved equally with the early christians among the various contending sects of religion or philosophy very high esteem had he witnessed their self-denying lives and been acquainted with their exalted ideas and aspirations we may with some confidence believe that he would have done justice to their real merits as distinguished from the errors of judgment which lay on the surface 
and which were the inevitable outcome of the scientific defects of the age. The present volume includes what may be termed the principal theological dialogues. In the spelling of Greek names, in the transitional and unsettled state of Greek orthography in this country, any attempt to adopt a more natural method must necessarily be a compromise. Hence the present version is open to the charge of some orthographical inconsistency. As for the translation itself, the method adopted has been to adhere as closely to the original as essential differences of idiom allow. To represent Lucian's peculiar graces of style, no translator can reasonably aspire. The versions, entire or partial, which have appeared up to this time, however spirited they may be, and the German Wieland surpasses all his rivals in this respect, in whose hands, as Lehmann expresses it, all Lucian lives and breathes, for the most part are not distinguished by any very strict fidelity to their original. The text followed is that of the great work of Hemsterhaus and Wrights, in Lehmann's edition, which has been compared with the alternative readings adopted by Jacobites. End of preface. Recording by phone.